0: I'd ask you to have two passages in your Bible, at least uh, before your minds, if not constantly before your eyes this evening. The first is in Romans chapter 8, and the second in it is in Ephesians and chapter 1. Romans chapter 8 and Ephesians chapter 1. <clears throat> we'll start with Romans 8, and we'll turn in a few minutes to Ephesians 1 hopefully see the proper connection. Let me read to you from Romans 8, verse 28 through to 30. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. Let's ask God's help. Lord, grant that our study of your truth, your saving power in salvation, might be profitable for our souls this evening. Lord, where we're confused, correct us where we're ignorant, instruct us, where we're troubled, encourage us, where we're pressing forward, direct us. Grant, O Lord, that the good things from your word might feed our souls for the glory of your name and the honour of your beloved Son, Jesus Christ. We ask these things, dependence upon the Holy Spirit, to help us both to speak and to wish that which pleases you and all in Jesus' name. Amen. God's plan of salvation is a beautiful thing it is stunning it is divine in its scope in its intent in its parts and in the whole and to understand God's plan of salvation is to obtain in measure that assurance which comes when we understand what God has purposed has already accomplished, is accomplishing, and will ultimately accomplish in our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. And when we understand what it is to be saved in Christ Jesus, then there is peace, there is joy, there is courage, there is obedience, there is praise to the God of our salvation. When we began looking at this topic, a study in salvation from Romans 8, we identified the ultimate purpose of God to conform his people to the image of his Son, that Christ might be the firstborn among many brothers. It is then ultimately and always to the praise of the glory of God's grace. That even the blessing that we obtain is ultimately so that God in Christ may be magnified among us. And in Romans chapter 8 and verses 28 to 30, and especially verse 30, you have this golden chain, as it's sometimes called, of divine acts. God has predestined Whom he's predestined, them he has also called. Whom he has called, these he's also justified. And whom he has justified, these he also glorified. And taking that as our basic framework, we're looking at the divine acts. But we're also trying to understand the human responses that are woven in under God's sovereign grace to that sequence of divine acts. And so we're beginning with Romans 8:28 to 30, looking particularly at those uh, stages that are set out so clearly before us. As we do that, what I'm going to try and do is rather than uh, just try and take a word and, 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 as it were, preach the word, I'm going to take the word, take the notion, take the principle. And we're going to try and find some what I'm, I'm going to call epitomising texts some distinctive or representative declarations from God's word that show us something more of what lies behind this language. And so uh, that's why we'll first of all start with this, then we'll turn to other places and try and understand, so if God predestines and if God calls, who is it that God calls and what is it that we do in response to the call of God? And on that basis, then, what does it mean to be justified? And if we've been justified, what what then happens to us? And, And try and work our way through so that we can see how God's mercy in Christ towards us holds together and holds us in this golden grip. So what we have here, then, is this language of predestination. And that's where we're going to concentrate this evening. It comes up more than once in Romans and chapter 8. We're told that God works all things together for good to those who love him, to those who are the called according to his purpose. And then there's this explanatory phrase. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined. What was the purpose? To be conformed to the image of his Son, that that son might be the firstborn among many brothers, and then picking up again. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. So you have this divine purpose here, to conform us to the image of Christ. And that predestination, that foreordination, comes to those whom God foreknew. And then, whom he predestined, these he also called, and so on. So you've got these two words here that seem to belong joined together. Who God foreknew, those God also predestined or foreordained. And that's not, you boys and girls might have heard the language of tautology, the same word that means, a different word that means more or less the same thing. Paul is not saying the same thing twice, he's not saying. The ones that god knew about beforehand he knew about beforehand or the ones that god determined to bless he determined to bless there's a a lovely sequence here whom god foreknew what is this foreknowledge of god well it's not just predictive knowledge it's not god saying well i can see the people who are going to believe on me eventually I can see down through the ages because I'm God and work out who's going to come to Christ and who ultimately will be with him in glory. And they're the people that I'm going to set my love upon. That totally undoes the the divine sovereignty that soaks through all this language. Foreknowledge here is distinguishing grace and active love. You know that somewhere some various points in the scripture this language of knowing someone uh, can speak of the most profound intimacy and particular delight and god himself is pleased to use that in a spiritual sense i'll give you one example from jeremiah chapter one and verse five some of you will uh, immediately think ah yes i know this language before i formed you in the womb I knew you. That's foreknowledge. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. At which point, you're already almost on your knees before the God who is... uh, uh, He is eternal. And he can know those whom he has not yet formed. It's one of those statements that makes you realise something of what it means to be a creature... And something of what it is to have God as creator. Before you were born, I sanctified you. I ordained you a prophet to the nations. Here is distinguishing grace. Before you even began to be knit together in your mother's womb, Jeremiah, I had already set my love upon you. I had determined to do you good. I had designated you my friend and my favourite. John Murray says that you could almost use the language of foreloved here. That's the the sense of foreknew. So it's not just God looking down through the ages and making some accurate predictions. It's God's love from before. It's God setting his love upon certain people. And whom he foreknew, says Paul in Romans 8, them he also predestined. And here the language might be for ordained, so you 've got effectively whom God loved before he ordained before, and then you 've got it again, it picks up the language in verse thirty, moreover, whom God predestined or foreordained so you 've got this distinguishing love that leads to God marking out certain people beforehand, and a divine determination. To bless, so that we might say, God has said, I will love you, and because I will love you, therefore I will bless you. That's the sort of sequence that we've got here God's determination to love, and God's determination to bless those upon whom He has set His love. If you're looking for an illustration, and sometimes the illustrations are easier than the, the, uh, the theory, as it were, listen to what God said to Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 7 and verse 7. The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any other people, for you were the least of all peoples. But because the Lord loves you, and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, <clears throat> the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand, redeemed you from the house of bondage, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. God looked upon his people, and there was nothing in them to commend them. They were in slavery, they were in bondage, they were not worthy of any favour from God. But God had loved them from before, and God had determined to bless them from before. And therefore it was not anything that was in them or lacking in them that undid or destroyed the purpose of God from beforehand. And that's where we want to turn to Ephesians and chapter 1. I hope you'll see why we're turning to an epitomising text. Because if I preach a word to you, if I preach an idea to you, it can get quite technical quite quickly what i want to do is earth it what i want you to do is to see this in action and the apostle paul does that in romans but he's condensing those things into this statement this is how he begins his letter to the ephesians verses three four and five blessed be the god and father of our lord jesus christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in christ just as Now, you've got the language of predestination there in verse 5. That's actually to do with adoption. And it's showing us that all these blessings that God has purposed for you, brother and sister, that these things have been ordained beforehand. God's purpose was always to bless you. Why? because he chose you in Christ from before the foundation of the world, that you should be holy and without blame before him in love. So if we are to understand this language of foreordination or predestination, what it means for God to have loved us before and ordained to bless us before, we're going to dive into this beautiful language in Ephesians 1 and verse 4 and ask Who is working? What's he doing? Whom does he bless and in whom? When is he doing this and why? We're going to try and, and get it concrete and real and bring it into our experience so that when we think of predestinating love, we understand who is at work and what it means for us. Notice then, when we talk about predestination, that it is God who chose us in Christ. The great who of predestination is the living and true God, the sovereign Lord and Saviour. He chose us, and that language always drives us back and back to sovereign grace and to divine intent. This is sovereign mercy being worked out. This is sovereign might. This is divine reality in the experience of God's people. Salvation always has its root in the will of God. It is not of the will of man. It is not something that is imposed upon us by another creature. It is not something that comes up out of us naturally. And it's important to remember this. When somebody says, but you believed. Yes, I did. And I'm perfectly content preaching this this evening, having told you this morning that your faith can make you well, in the sense that we looked at. So, but, but you said, I need to believe on Jesus Christ. Yes, you do. He say, well, well, how can I? Be- Where does that come from? Ah, now you're asking a good question because you have to go back and back and back and back, and there are these human responses, there are these human acts, but the origin of it, the genesis of it, the creation of it, the design of it, the instigation of it, the genesis of it all lies in the heart of God. There is always this divine He at the beginning of the chain of salvation. God has determined to bless if anyone is conformed to the will of to the uh, the image of christ if anybody follows the will of god it is because god is at work notice how paul begins this song blessed be the god and father of our lord jesus christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in christ just as, as he has acted in these ways So set God at the beginning, see God as the great fountainhead, the father of all these mercies and blessings. This is who has acted. Now, what has he done? Brothers and sisters, he chose us. He chose us. Whom he loved before, he ordained before to be conformed to the image of his Son. What love this is. Love vast as an ocean, loving kindness as the flood. That these things should have been purposed for you and for me. God has set his love upon a particular people. And what the Lord could say through Moses in Deuteronomy uh, 7, verses 6, 7 and 8 could be said in spades of us. When God shed his love upon Israel, why did he love them? Because he'd undertaken to love them. Because he'd made promises to Abraham. Ah, so what was in Abraham? Abraham was a wandering Arab. Abraham is is described as a, a wandering Aramean. He's picked up, as it were, out of the gutter There never was anything in Abraham or Isaac or Jacob to commend them to God. And the favour that God showed to Israel when he brought them up out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, that was a favour that God showed because he'd already determined to bless them. He had already set his love upon them. It was not their worthiness that won God's affection. It was God's affection that bestowed blessings upon them. It's not of anything in us. It is everything that is in God. He blesses us before we begin to bless him. Bless God. Why? Because he has blessed you. How has he done that? He chose you. He set his love upon you. He determined beforehand to bless you. He knew your sin and your misery. That's what God saw when he looked upon you. And he said, that sinner, that wretch, that hell-deserving man and woman, I will love them, not because they are lovely, but because I am a God of love. And having set my love upon them, I will bless them in ways that they cannot begin to calculate. I know them, I see all their needs, and I have appointed them for mercy. I will raise them. You understand now some of that psalmic language that the prophecies that I will raise them from the ash heap and seek them with princes, with the princes of my people. And you think that language just begin to begin to describe the depths to which God stoops to find us and the heights to which in mercy and grace he is pleased to raise us. You see, when when you're asking perhaps all of the, the why and the how questions about your salvation, when you're asking, but why would God love me? That sometimes bother you? You see the sin of your own soul? how could god love a sinner like me what is there you see what you're starting to do you're starting to turn your gaze upon yourself what is there in me that makes me worthy of god's affection what is there in me that could possibly constitute me suitable or or fitted for the love of god toward me nothing in fact entirely the opposite in yourself and left to yourself You deserve nothing but the wrath and the justice of God in his holiness. But the God who is holy and just is also a God who is merciful and good. And rather than deal with you as your sins deserve, he has been pleased to purpose for you a blessing that is beyond calculation and present comprehension. And so when you're asking, why should God save a wretch like me? Your answer is because he is God. And there is none like him. You see, so many of your doubts and your fears will rise up because you're wondering why you're worthy of being loved. And when you ask the question, why am I worthy of being loved, you'll never find an answer that will hold up your soul in the day of trouble. But if you look to God himself for the answer, why have I been loved? Oh, now There is security there is confidence, there is assurance, because in the perfect, pure heart of the eternal God, there was a determination to bless. He chose us. Not even he sort of just chose right, but he set his love upon a people. And then there's a whom. He chose us in him. And truly, my friends, God's electing love could not be otherwise. Christ has been appointed as the mediator of God's people. And we said already when we looked at Romans 8 in that, that sort of something of an overview, said so we must never separate the elements of these salvation from Christ Jesus because it is to Christ that we are ultimately being conformed and everything that God does in us and with us and for us and to us is in connection with his plan and purpose, his great covenant mercy in Christ Jesus. So you have here God choosing us in Christ. You see, Christ is appointed as the mediator of his people and then we are appointed in connection with Him. This is what we call covenant theology. God has determined that Christ shall be the great representative head of his people. There was a first Adam and there is a second and last Adam and all of us are either in Adam the first or we are in Adam the last. And in Adam the last, in the great Lord Jesus Christ, we are safe and secure because we belong to him. And we belonged to him always. All this blessing, all this determination to love and to favour always is in connection with Jesus Christ because it couldn't be in us. Think of your sinfulness, think of your transgression, think of your iniquity. How could God in holiness, apart from a mediator, look upon you and say, yes, I will do them good? No, it is through Christ that he determines to bless. It is through Christ that he is ready to show favour. We are undeserving. We are ill-deserving. But God does not deal with us on our own account. He deals with us in Christ Jesus in order that we may be blessed as a demonstration of that great love with which he loved us, God has said that he will deal with us in connection with his beloved Son, Jesus Christ. And everything that you know about the Son then, you need to try and, as it were, backfill into this statement. This Christ, this Jesus, this only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. He who is in the bosom of the Father, the only and ultimately beloved, the the, the only begotten Son. He is the one in whom God has been pleased to set his love upon us. All the divine love, as it were, flows through him and out of him. In Christ, you must be loved. You must be loved if you're chosen in Christ. Because God loves his Son with an eternal, unshakable, unbreakable love. And if God from before the foundation of the world has determined that he will deal with you in the Son of his love, then God must also love you and he loves you as those who are in his son. He loves you with those echoes isn't strong enough, those glorious reverberating realities of God-like love toward the son. We'll pick some of those up in a moment. You need to understand, brother and sister, that your salvation is never a part of from Christ. everything else that comes to pass, whom he predestined those he also called whom he called them he also justified whom he justified those he also glorified that all flows out of the fact that God foreknew you and foreordained you he chose you in Christ Jesus. this is the the marvel then of our salvation. And again, it helps us to to step back. You know those, those hymns. People like William Cooper. Why was I made to taste the feast and enter while there's room? While thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come. Why was I saved? Why me? Because God put you in Christ. God set his love upon you in Christ Jesus. And then you trace back again those streams to the fountain. Why did I come to him? Because you were chosen in him. I didn't know that. No, but God did. God knew. God loved. God foreordained to bless you. And had you not been foreloved and foreordained, you would not have been called. But being called, you came, your heart made willing, through the mercy of God and the work of the Holy Spirit, So that as you look back, you say, oh, this is Christ. This is the purchase of his blood. Now, when did God make this choice? He chose us in Christ. When? Before the foundation of the world. And now again, our minds begin to melt. (laughs) How can you go back, creature, before the foundation of the world? We're locked into time, aren't we? And this is, this is a, a time phrase. And it's a time phrase that the Apostle's trying to use to, to give us some sense of what we foolishly refer to as eternity past. Eternity doesn't have a past, it's just eternity. God is simply eternal. He is the I am. He is the, the ever-living one, without beginning, without end. And so from our perspective, we're going back Back into what we call eternity past, back into the divine counsel, back into that determination within the Trinity to bless God's people, to make a people for blessing. In 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 20, we're told that Jesus Christ was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifested in these last times. For you. There again, chosen in Him. He's foreordained to be your mediator, foreordained to be the Lamb who lays down his life and sheds his blood in order that you may be saved. But he is manifested in time for you. What God determined beforehand, God now brings about in time and in space. And this is where I want you to try and understand something of that glory of the love of God. Because in John chapter 17 and verse 24, our Lord prays in language that again, I think, leaves us stunned before the majesty and the goodness of the Most High. He says, Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. And you see how all these phrases then begin to add up together. We were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. Christ was appointed to be the mediator from before the foundation of the world. Christ was loved before the foundation of the world. And Christ would have his people know that God loves us as he has loved Christ himself. Oh, my friends, God has loved you as he has loved Christ himself. How could he have done that? How could he have loved you as the way he loved his co-eternal son? Because he chose you in him before the foundation of the world. And when he was loving him, he was for loving you. And determining that he would bless you in his son, Jesus Christ christ so that he can say through the prophet jeremiah i have loved you with an everlasting love i have loved you with an everlasting love oh god what splendors are there in this mercy of yours towards us such favor that beggars our understanding that makes us simply say oh god all i can understand is that you love me I cannot begin to grasp the depths. I cannot begin to fathom the the profundity of this saving purpose from before the foundation of the world. But as I try and hold these things together in my mind, and as I go back, and as I go back, and as I go back, I see that point. And you with your Son said, in effect, we will save a people. Christ undertook to be your representative. And the Father said, and I will bless them in you. The Father's love for you is co-eternal with his co-eternal love for his co-eternal Son. Those words sounded like they might mean something. I think they do, but it's just staggering, is it not? That God has loved us, having chosen us in Christ from before the foundation of the world. Now, does that mean that we were saved in eternity? No. It means we were appointed for salvation from eternity. And this Jesus has been manifested in these last times for us And whom God has predestined, when he is good and ready, then he has also called. So that our experience as creatures of time and space is that we began to know at a certain point that love with which God had loved his people from before the foundation of the world. Did God love us beforehand? Yes, but now he begins to show it in this distinctive way by drawing us to his Son, Jesus Christ. And if it's been appointed from all eternity, then it must, must, must come to pass. There's never anything accidental about salvation. There's never anything random about it. It is fixed, it is sure, it is certain. Why? Because God has appointed it beforehand. Whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. God chose us in Christ from before the foundation of the world. My friends, that leaves me and you lost in wonder, love and praise. Why has God done this? Ephesians uses language that gives us the same sort of idea as we found in Romans. That we should be holy and without blame before him in love. God's purpose, again, with regard to us, is that we should be holy. That because of his love toward you, brother, sister, you should be entirely set apart to him. You should belong to him. You should be his, marked out as his, through and through. And that you should be without blame. You should have no blemish, no spot, no mark upon you. That God will raise you to this high pitch of spotlessness and spiritual beauty, conformed to the image of his Son. It's the beautiful language that Paul uses later on in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 27. Husbands are loving their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Why did Christ die for his people? That he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. That he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing. But that she should be holy and without blemish. The son working in accordance with the father's purpose. My son, I I want them to be like you. Father, I want them to be like me. I want them to have that spotlessness upon them. So that when the day of consummation comes and I take them to be my holy bride. They are fit for that glory which is to come. God's purpose in saving us is increasing. Increasing. And then ultimate holiness, conformed to Christ, standing before him, holy and without blemish. This reminds us again that the holiness that any one of God's people possesses is not the reason why God loves us. It's the fruit of God's love toward us. If you look in your heart and you think, why am I not the man I used to be? How am I not the woman I used to be? What happened to, now the battle is there, that's true, but what happened to that dominating lust, that dominating anger, that all-conquering rage, that bitterness, that misery, that envy, that sorrow, that resentment, whatever it may be. Where is it that this increasing holiness comes from? My friends, it's because God loved you. It's the fruit of his mercy toward you. He chose you when you were dead in trespasses and sins. He set his love upon you in Christ Jesus because there was nothing lovely in you. And he determined to bring you to himself through Christ by his spirit. And by degrees to make you more and more like his son until that day when you shall be spotless, blameless, pure and perfect in his sight. When you look at what you are becoming... Never then imagine that God saw that beforehand... ...or figured out that it was going to work out well for you... ...and said, well, I'll take that one, I'll take that one, I'll take that one. No, every, every strand of your humanity... ...that is made in any degree more like Jesus Christ... ...in your present experience and in your future expectation... ...is because this is what God has appointed you for... ...from before the foundation of the world. And if it were not for that... ...still you would be dead in your trespasses and sins still you would be foul and filthy. It's a reminder, is it not, that electing love never becomes an excuse for sin. Down through history there have been people who have been terrified that if if you think God just loves you and he's always loved you and he always will love you then you can do what you want, you can live how you please you can go wherever you wish, you can uh, indulge whatever desires you have because you're okay, because God's loved you. God forbid, says the Apostle Paul, if you understand that you are chosen for holiness, if you know that God has saved you in order that you may be conformed to the image of his Son, then far from indulging godlessness, you will pursue holiness in the fear of the Lord. Why? Because you'll be saying, oh, now this is love, that I should have been plucked out of the pit, that I should be set apart to God, that he should have taken a wretch like me. You understand now why Newton sang the way he did? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. That's the man who said, as toward the end of his life, his memory was getting shot. <laughs> Couldn't remember everything so clearly. He said, But this I do recall: that I am a great sinner. But Jesus is a great saviour. That was Newton's confidence, and that is the confidence of every child of God. When my brain is going, when my body is failing, when my graces are quivering, it is because I was chosen in him before the foundation of the world. He is determined to love me and to bless me. If you want to add a couple more, this very quickly, there's also a when and a how. We're going to be before him the divine presence. Ultimately, it's pointing to heaven itself, the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. And there's a how in love. Why do we love God? Because he first loved us. We have begun to love him now because we know that he has loved us in Christ, chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. But when we see him as he is, and when we are made like him and when we begin with perfected minds, when we begin with perfect understandings to see something of the depths of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, the love which passes all understanding, then we will begin to love him as we ought. So where do we begin? We begin with God. We trace everything in our salvation back to the fountain. He of His electing love, salvation does bestow. Brothers and sisters, when we begin to understand that, it is most humbling. Who now will boast that they somehow are worthy? Who now will say, see me? Do you understand why God saved me? No, when we look at ourselves and when we look at what God has done, we say, see me? Why would God save me? How could God save me? There is nothing in me to commend myself to him. But, oh, he chose me in Christ before the foundation of the world. What have you to boast in, Christian? What cockiness, what arrogance. Is there any place for that kind of carnal boasting in the life of one of God's people? We ought to be the most humble men and women on earth. The worst that anybody could say about us isn't half the truth if they only knew our hearts, but God does. And God loved us in the teeth of our own undeservings and ill-deservings therefore we ought to be like job in dust and ashes before him because now we begin to see him with our eyes when we'd only heard him with our ears it's also so comforting it's comforting because your salvation doesn't rest upon you your salvation doesn't hang upon your worthiness upon your present or future goodness it hangs securely upon the granite of Christ's accomplishments, Christ's covenant determinations to be the head of his people, and God's determination to bless you in connection with him. If that's true, I'm safe, and so are you. If God has chosen us in Christ, then far from making me careless, it makes me joyful, it makes me peaceful, it gives me confidence because I know that once in him I am in him forever, and thus the eternal covenant stands. And it's profoundly encouraging. It means, my friends, that you and I can go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Why? Because it's not their worthiness or unworthiness, not their sinfulness or apparent righteousness, not how close they seem to be to God or how far they seem to be from God that determines to whom we go or what we say or how we preach. You and I can go to every creature in the world and say, Christ has died and there is good news for you. And we do so in the expectation, with the confidence, with the belief, the trust that God has chosen a people for himself in Christ, from before the foundation of the world. And I do not need to be afraid that this one or that one will turn away or whatever it may be. I go to preach and I know that God will save his people from their sins. That's why you and I go to everyone and we speak the same gospel and we offer the same Christ and we hold out the same hope because God saves And no man can stay his hand. And let me close by saying that this truth was never intended to be crippling or hindering to those who are not believers. It's meant to be a joy, a humbling joy, a profound comfort, and a sweet encouragement to the saints. It is not meant to turn you into a little dark vortex. A kind of an ugly loop of trying to work out what is God's plan, what is God's purpose, what is God's plan, what is God's purpose. God has not told you to work out whether or not you are foreloved and foreordained. God has commanded you to repent of your sins and come to Jesus Christ. The question that you need to ask is simply this, am I trusting him? Have you come to Jesus Christ? Have you trusted in Him to forgive you for all your sins, to wash you clean? Have you taken Him as the God man and the Savior of sinners? Then I can tell you this that God chose you in Him before the foundation of the world, that you should be holy and without blame before Him in love. Come to Christ. Enter into the sweet covenant that God has made with his Son and with his people in his Son. Take Christ as he is offered in the gospel. Enter in to the love of God, eternal and yet ever new, from before the foundation of the world to beyond the point at which time ends, that you may be with him always. In Christ. Why? Because whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Moreover, whom he predestined, those whom he chose in Christ from before the foundation of the world, that they might be holy and without blame before him in love, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. Amen.